you uh, grabbed a handout, there's an outline on the back of that. Um, but what we need more than an outline is God to open our eyes to his words. How about we pray and ask that he would do that? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word that we may know you. And so we ask that as we read it now, you would help us to see you afresh. Would you help us to know the things that you want us to know? Would you help us to believe the things that you want us to believe? But particularly in this passage, would you help us this morning to do the things that you would have us do? For our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, today we come to the end of our seven weeks in the book of Titus. And it's a book... Well, it's a letter, really, a letter written by Paul, and it's all about being changed by the gospel. Paul's conviction in this letter is that faith in Jesus is not just something that you believe. It's not just something that you know in your head. It's, It's transformation. We are new creations once we have our faith in Christ. And so, particularly, Titus has a focus on actually doing things that are good. We saw this last week, didn't we? There was a whole lot of language throughout the letter focusing on being good. That was something that Paul thought was particularly important in Crete, because remember what people in Crete were like? They were liars, they were evil brutes, they were lazy gluttons, they were not particularly good people. And so Paul says, no, if you're a, if you're a Christian, you need to change. And it's the same for us. If we're followers of Jesus, we need to be unlike other people in our world. So Titus has a lot to say about being good, and Titus 3 in particular. We already looked at this passage last week. Don't worry, I am aware that we read that same passage last week. But the first thing we learned last week is how we can possibly be good. Last week we saw where, where to look to to find the resources to actually change. And it was a unique answer. Because if you ask our culture, how do you change? How do you achieve? How do you attain success? How do you overcome problems in your life? What's our culture's answer? Look inside. It says, look in your heart. Believe in yourself. That's where you'll find motivation. That's where you'll find energy. You can do it. Well, Paul shows us in Titus 3, no, 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 that won't do. (laughs) Look inside yourself. And what does Paul show us? Look inside and you'll see a heart that is greedy, that is selfish, that is deceived, that is enslaved, that is foolish, that is disobedient. That's not going to help you be good. Look inside yourself. You will not find the resources to live a good life. So where do we look? If we want to actually live changed lives, where are we going to find the power to change? Where are we going to find that motivation, that energy? And Paul shows us, well, the power for us to change is the same power that brought us forgiveness and rebirth. It's when we see, when we really experience the kindness and love of God that we'll want to be good and actually be able to be good. Because friends, when you know how much God loves you, you don't need the love of any other person in this world. You'll still have it. That's a bonus, but you don't need it. Everyone else in the world could hate you if God loves you. 
When you see the weight, when you feel the weight of God's blessings on you, you don't need to be greedy with what you have. You won't need to hold on to it. God has given you everything you could ever need. When you experience God's forgiveness for your sin, well, you don't need to hold on to grudges. You don't need to be bitter towards those people that have done the wrong thing to you. You don't need that anymore. You've been forgiven by the only person who counts. And when you have an unshakable conviction that eternal joy awaits you, that your life is going to be spent living in heaven with Jesus, you won't care one bit if you lose absolutely everything else in this life. You can lose everything, everyone, if you have him. And that's going to be the basis of our transformation. If we're going to change, it's because we are convicted, we've experienced, we've seen the love and kindness of God in the form of Jesus Christ. Real transformation begins when we see the sweetness of the gospel. So if you want to change, don't look inside your heart. That won't, that won't do. Look to God's love and kindness. That'll change you forever. So that's what we saw last week. That was my whole sermon in three minutes just then. That's how we be good. That's our motivation, our energy. Today, we're going back in chapter three. Now we're going to look at the details. We've seen how we can change. Now we're going to see well, what, what's this change actually going to look like. How do we even be good? What does it look like? What are the good works that Jesus died to make us eager to do? And Paul gives us lots of examples. But as we look at them this morning, uh, we're just going to see three things, three kind of sweeping observations. We will push into some of the details. But the first thing, when the gospel has gripped you, not just when you know it in your head, but when it's gripped you, when it's real to you, when you feel the kindness and love of God, when it's appeared to you, it stretches you. That's our first thing. It stretches you. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle Toward everyone. Now, did you see how far our good works are to stretch in those verses? Paul did not say, try to do one nice thing every day. Or he said, be ready to do whatever is good. If it's good, you be ready to do it. He says, slander no one. If they are a person, you don't slander them. You don't speak evil against them. He says, always be gentle toward everyone. Always everyone. Do you, do you see how all-encompassing this is? If you jump down to verse 13, Paul wants the church in Crete to support some gospel workers. And he says to them, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have Everything they need. Do you see how all-encompassing this is? It's a very high standard that Paul sets. Do everything that is good all the time for everyone. There's, There's no caveats there. It's just total goodness to everyone all the time. And remember who Paul's talking to. These are the people that he's described as evil brutes and liars and lazy gluttons. 
You might think that for people like that, Paul might, you know, give them a little lower standard to start off with. You know, like what we do with NRL players. We don't expect you to be perfect. Just be a little bit less awful. That, that's kind of what we do with them, don't we? Just, just be less overtly disgusting. Just, you know, we don't want them to be perfect. That's, that's just way too big a stretch. Paul says, uh-uh. If Jesus is your king, then your aim should be every good work at every opportunity for every person. Sound hard? <laughs> it sounds exhausting, doesn't it? It is exhausting. If you spend your time focusing on trying to be good, you'll be completely exhausted. Try it this week. I, I challenge you. Try it. Try to be good to everyone all the time. I'll give you a call on Tuesday and see how you're going. <laughs> if you keep your eyes focusing on doing good, you'll never get there. That's because your eyes are actually on the wrong thing. Focusing on being good, you'll never do it. But what did we see last week? Where should our eyes be? What are we focusing? What has appeared to us? Keep your eyes on the kindness and love of God and you'll actually be able to live out this standard. If you can keep your eyes directed at the one who bled and died in your place. It should have been you on the cross, but he jumped up there for you. You keep your eyes on him. You keep your eyes on the one who adopted you, says, you can be my children even though you hated me. Keep your eyes on the one who adores you, who cherishes you, who will do anything for you. Keep your focus on him and being good for others will not be a burden for you. Johnny Cash is way before my time. Uh, but there's a song of his that I knew and I had no idea it was his because I've heard the line before. The main line in this song that I'd heard, it's, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Does anyone actually know the song? Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's the line in the song. And it's a critique that people often throw at Christians. Being so focused on eternity that they're actually just useless to the world right now. You know, they don't actually do anything to help anyone with their challenges right now. And and it's a valid critique, isn't it? It's an absolute travesty that so many people who claim to follow Jesus do so little to care for the people that Jesus cared most about, like the poor and the lame and the outcast. It's a valid critique. It's one that we should hear. But Johnny Cash got the reason wrong. You see, the problem with Christians who are no earthly good is not that they're too heavenly minded. It's actually that they're not heavenly minded enough. Because if you're truly heavenly minded, if you can keep your mind focused on God's glory, if you can train your mind to recall God's incredible grace to you, you'll be the most earthly good of anyone. Because you'll be so captivated by the love of God that you won't be able to help yourself. You'll just ooze love for people. You won't have to try. You won't have to think about it. It'll just flow from you. No good work will be too much for you. No act of kindness will be a burden. It'll mean that instead of asking the religious question, how how little do I have to do? What's the minimum standard? That's a religious question. You can ask the gospel question. How much can I do? 
Not how little must I do, how much can I do? What more can I do? I mean, that's, that's the basic premise of the Good Samaritan story, isn't it? You know what happened in the, in the Gospels there? Religious people came and asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment to keep? It's a how little question. What, what's the bare minimum, Jesus? Well, if there's just one command I had to do, well, which one would that be? Jesus tells them, love God, love your neighbour. And what do they say? Who's my neighbour? How small can I make this command? What's the minimum requirement here? And so Jesus tells them this story of religious people who saw doing good as a burden. You know, the priest and the Levite who pass by, see the injured man and think, that's too hard. That'll make me late. Someone else can do that. But in contrast, what's the Samaritan do? He asks, how much can I do? What more can I do? You tell me, innkeeper, I'll pay it. Friends, that's what the gospel does in us. You see, naturally, we ask the religious question. We want to know the bare minimum. What do we need to get into heaven? What's the lowest rung that I can climb over? What's the minimum standard? But when we know the love and kindness of God, we say, how much can we do? What can we do to love and serve more? When we truly comprehend how much God loves us and how much God loves this world, when we've tasted his grace firsthand, it'll stretch us to love more and to give more and to care more. The gospel stretches us. That's our first thing. The second thing we see in Titus chapter 3 is that the gospel Sorry. The second thing that we see in Titus 3, that the gospel does in us, when we feel its power at work within us, it bends us. Firstly, it stretches us. Secondly, it bends us. It makes us bow. The moment the power of the gospel is felt in your life, it makes you bow to Jesus in humility, doesn't it? Because the, the gospel destroys any sense of pride that you could have in yourself. When you hear the gospel, what does it tell you? It tells you that your sin was so bad that the perfect son of God had to die for you. Well, what are you going to be proud at of that? The gospel shows you that your situation was so desperate that Jesus had to leave his throne, come to earth and die a brutal death for you. But not only that, and we see that Jesus was not only just willing to die for you. He didn't kind of begrudgingly do it. No, he, he was glad to die for you. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How, how crazy is that? Joy. Jesus had joy to die for you. Wasn't that... It was a pleasant experience. He still had to endure the cross. It was brutal. It brought him to tears. It made him question it, but it brought him joy to know that he could reconcile you to God. When you see that, your, your pride is destroyed, right? There is nothing 
that you could do. You're not going to start listing your credentials before God and telling him how good you are. No, no. When you see that, you fall down on your face and worship him. It makes you bow. You honour him. You submit to his authority. You bow. But that's not the only bowing the gospel makes us do. Having dealt with our pride, the gospel keeps us bowing, not just to Jesus, but to other people. Because the gospel gives us a posture of humility. It helps us see that we do not know everything, that we're not always right, that the world does not revolve around us. And so it bends us in gentleness and respect for other people. It enables us to treat other people better than we would actually treat ourselves. It enables us to say, I was wrong. That's that's a remarkable thing. How many people in your life do you know that just cannot say those words? The gospel makes us say it freely. Because we were. We were completely wrong. We were foolish and disobedient. We had rejected God. The gospel makes us say, I was wrong to other people when we're wrong. It frees us to ask for forgiveness. It removes our compulsion to have everyone bend to our will and instead allows us to bend to theirs. The gospel bends us to a whole range of different people. But in verse 1, Paul shows us how this new posture of humility will bring us to do something that most Aussies despise. It makes us obey the government. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Do you see how countercultural the gospel makes us? Now, there's a few things to notice about this. And if you actually want to explore this idea further, go to Romans 13. Paul has a lot more to say about it, but a few things that we will say today. Uh, Firstly, Paul does not ask us to tolerate the government. He doesn't say don't resist the government. He says actively subject yourselves to them. That is, put yourself under their authority. Actively obey them. Energetically comply with their orders. That, that's radical, isn't it? Most of us sort of treat the government as a necessary evil, right? That's our attitude towards government. Yeah, okay, it's needed, but it's bad. Paul says, serve them. Second thing to notice is that Paul makes no mention of the governing authorities actually being worthy of our obedience. And if the Greek historian Polybius is anything to go by, the governing authorities that Paul is asking the Cretan Christians to submit to are a far cry from any member of parliament that you've ever met. Polybius wrote this about governing officials on the island of Crete. He says, it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public polity more unjust than in Crete. Anywhere he looked, he couldn't find a government worse than Crete. Paul says, submit to them. Christians, obey them. They were harsh, vindictive, incredibly self-obsessed, and yet Paul can say, be subject to them. 
He says the same thing to Christians living in Rome, in a, a place where just a few decades after Paul wrote, Christians were fed to lions as public entertainment. Do you see, the reason Paul asks us to submit to the government isn't because the government is necessarily good. In fact, he tells Christians to submit to the government even when the government is not good. The reason that we should submit is not because they're good, it's because God put them there. They are God's authority. He put them in charge. He gives them the power that they have. He tasks them with promoting good and restraining evil. And so you... Obeying the authorities isn't so much about what you think of them, but what you think of God. And so, friends, if you're someone who has a problem with the government, if you're one of those people who's always complaining about the idiots in Canberra, I want you to consider this morning that your problem may actually be a problem with God. Because have a think about it for a second. I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm not looking at anyone. Um, why do you hate the government? Don't say it out loud. But why do you hate the government? Well, what is it that really grinds your gears about the government? I suspect that in most cases, you hate the government because they take something from you that you think belongs to you. Maybe it's your money in taxes. Maybe it's your rights, your freedoms, benefits. The thing that really gets you irritated is when the government takes something that you believe you're owed. And what are you really saying when you get angry about these things? You're saying that you're the only person that matters and that everyone should bow down and worship you. I mean, you're not saying it in those words, clearly. But that's the sentiment of it, isn't it? And I assure you, God's going to have a big problem with that sort of attitude. You see, we're outraged when a government decision costs us our money. And what does God say? I gave you the money. It's all mine. Give to Caesars what is Caesars. Or to open another chestnut, let's have a think about COVID vaccination. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to tell you that you should or shouldn't get vaccinated. I want to look at the principle behind it, though. Because there are a lot of people outraged at the moment at the government's, let's call it, forceful encouragement of the COVID vaccine. And if it's not you, I bet you know someone. We all know someone who has a big deal about this. It may be you yourself. And that's okay. I'm not judging you for this. And there are lots of reasons that we could resist the COVID vaccine. And if you talk to people, it's really important that you actually do try and understand their reasons because not everyone is arguing from the same point of view. But... This might be a bit of an oversimplification, but as far as I can tell, there's a fair chunk of people in our society whose opposition to the COVID vaccine basically boils down to how dare the government tell me what to do with my body. Now, that's not everyone. Don't, that, don't hear me saying that that's you, but there is a fair chunk of people that that seems to be their basic problem. It's not anything to do with COVID itself. It's not anything to do with the vaccines themselves. It's with the government telling them what to do. And within that, there's a narrative that says, I'm the boss. I'm in charge. I do what I want. Who, who are you to tell me what to do? And you know what? The gospel destroys that argument. The gospel says you are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. We just sung it, didn't we? This life I live is not my own. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Now, I'll leave it to you to decide exactly how you will honour God with regards to the COVID vaccine. That's between you and God. But don't miss the point here. Without the gospel, we're the bunch of seagulls in Finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. We're just thinking about me. When the kindness and love of God appears to you, it helps you to say yours. It helps you to give everything away. We give it to God first and foremost. Or, you know, rather, we actually realise that everything was already God's and we didn't need to give it to him. It already belonged to him. But we recognise that he is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth and in our lives. We give everything to him, and that includes our money, our freedom, our rights, our bodies, our very selves. And we can give that freely, knowing that we are richer for it, that it is better for us that way. But with our eyes set on him, we're also free to willingly submit to authorities that he has placed in charge over us. You see that? Our basic posture to government, to police, to any authority, to our boss at work, even within families, there are structures of authority. Our basic posture is to bend is to humbly submit to the authorities that God puts over them. Not necessarily because that authority is good, not necessarily because they're always right, but because God has put them there for the good ordering of his world. Now, there's a whole lot more that we could say about this. And this passage doesn't really deal with it, but it is important for us to note that with our eyes set on Jesus, we're also free and, in fact, obliged to oppose the government at points. Because you'll remember, if if God has put the old government in authority and he's put them there to uphold good and restrain evil, there will be times when they don't do that. In fact, they do the opposite, where they promote evil and restrain good. And in those situations, we actually need to oppose them. We need to resist them. We don't submit to them. We submit to God. And so there will be points where we actually have to make that difficult decision, where we will need to firmly stand in opposition to government and we need to wear the cost of that. But, to be clear, we don't resist the government simply because they don't do what we want or because they're infringing upon our rights. We resist the government when they are opposing God's rule. Now, that's a big can of worms and there's heaps more to be said about it. But Titus 3 teaches us that our default stance, at least, all other things being considered, our default stance is to bend in submission to the government for the glory of God. So the gospel stretches us. It stretches us in love for all people. The gospel bends us in willing submission to governing authorities. And I was going to make a third point. I think I'm going to skip over it. The third point was that the gospel actually strengthens us, that it enables us to uphold the truth of the gospel, even when it costs us personally. Paul goes on uh, later down uh, in verse 9 there to talk about uh, how we deal with conflict in church. And the, the basic point is that 
The gospel enables us to be strong on the truth, to stand up for it. But we'll come to that another time. There's plenty of places in the Bible that raise those issues. Because really, I want to leave you with the same encouragement that Paul leaves Titus in verse 8. Because in verse 8, Paul shows us that it's the gospel that's going to give us the power to live transformed lives. And so friends, if you want to live a good life, if you want to love like you have been loved, if you want to give like you have received, if you want to serve like you have been served, then we need to see the love and kindness of God that has appeared to you. Friends, that is going to be the thing that will change you. And so let me finish with verse 8. I want you to stress these things. That is the gospel, the love and kindness of God. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we see that you set a high standard for our behaviour in this life. It almost seems like an impossible standard. But Lord, when we see the incredible depths of your love and kindness to us, we're reminded that there is no burden too great for us to bear, that there is no good work that is beyond us. And so, Lord, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on your love and kindness so that we may be careful to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Keep us from living lives that actually contradict the gospel, from thinking that the world revolves around us, from thinking that this life is about what we can attain for ourselves. Show us that your sacrificial love for us gives us a new purpose in life to love you and to love others, to bring glory to you by displaying your love. And so, Lord, would you fill us with your spirit so that we may love like you do. Strengthen us in this, we pray. Enable us to encourage one another in good works and all the more as we go about our lives. Lord, we pray all these things not just because they're good for us, but because they're good for everyone. They're profitable and excellent, and they bring glory to you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.